This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. edition of the show before the show podcast the official podcast of minor league baseball as i start out yelling as always it's a very professional way to start every week's show getting loud and then progressively quieter and quieter it's like the thing they teach you not to do in journalism school but hey here we are uh along with sam dykstra and benjamin hill my name is tyler mon fellows hello Uh, isn't this just the audio version of the inverted pyramid yeah pretty much yeah. Talk about stuff like the, that they taught us in journalism school, right? right. Is that you start big and then you start rarely, big yeah. and then you get, in this case, it's more like you start annoying and then you get less, you bring in the non-annoying guys and it goes, the annoying pyramid go, gets smaller. Are you just the saying we're going to be very professional by the end of this? It's just going to be very buttoned up. Well, you guys are. I'm not making any decrees about myself. That doesn't usually happen. The ben? middle TV What's section going is going to be uh, amazingly <laughs> yeah, exactly. polished this week. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm professional from the jump, and that never wavers uh, from beginning to end. It's uh, true. Uh, just complete professionalism. Um, we're recording this on a Wednesday. I'm working from home. Um, so sitting in my bedroom slash office slash uh, my kid Harry's room as well. This is the multi-purpose room of the house. And you know, looking to my left out the window, as you've no doubt heard and a lot of you experiencing, uh, the air is really weird out around uh, our parts these days. There's a strange yellow haze and a... Uh, thick burning smell and it's definitely a little unsettling i know that people in other parts of the country have experienced this much worse and uh much more often i think for us east coasters this is kind of like whoa getting at least a uh, a taste of uh of an unsettling new phenomenon and uh the podcast continues on with unabated fail. we are like yeah, unabated we are like the uh, postal service of podcasts and uh, as long as that internet connection holds strong we're ready to go those pictures out of new york today really are very freaky they're the the only thing in recent memory that i can recall as being freakier were the pictures from san francisco uh and seattle a couple of years ago where the giants and mariners were each playing home games and the sky was like blood red blood orange and it's similar to that in New York today, and I know it was last night, but yeah, not uh, not real fun. Wildfire smoke, uh, not not a real fun thing to deal with. It's uh, kind of an annual occurrence now for a whole lot of people, and it seems to be becoming more so, and uh, not fun, and very unsettling, those pictures. But you're inside, which is very good, and uh, you know, we have all now lived through a time where everybody owns masks, also very good to wear when uh, hazardous wildfire smoke is around, so this is a PSA at the start of this podcast as well. I like it. It's good. Speaking of professional, that's that's where we're that's where we're rolling now with just public health advisories. 
Um, well, we're going to get into the show before the show, the official podcast of minor league baseball. But before we do big thanks to any and all of you, uh, for joining us and hanging out on this week's episode, you can get in touch with us as always podcast at MILB.com. Uh, you can also find us on social media at Sam Dykes or MILB at Ben's biz and at Tyler Mon on Twitter. And, uh, guys, let's get into it. We've got a, a story up on the site from Ben, which I will say is uh, one of the most eagerly anticipated stories I would think of this season, especially on the promo front. And that is uh, Ben finally got a chance to write the full details of the uh, Eugene Emeralds now phenomenon, uh, the exploding whales, the alternate identity that was unveiled just prior to the season. Um, People around that area probably knew what it was in reference to a decent amount of people. I would say nationally, knew what it was in reference to. Um, and there are uh, a lot more people who now know what that conversation uh, was about going into that promo and how the promo came to life and everything else. And, uh, you know, this is this is a fun one, man. Tell us about the getting the blow-by-blow elements of the Exploding Whales. Yeah, I mean, this is something we talked about on the podcast quite a bit already, the exploding whales in general. So apologies for those of the those of you who are rolling your eyes and saying these dudes are talking about this again. Uh, the exploding whales was announced March 23rd. Uh, the Eugene Emeralds played their first exploding whales game in April. I was there May 6th um, when they played as the exploding whales. Uh, but one more time, yes, in Florence, Oregon, in 1970, uh, a sperm whale, sperm whale. Uh, 45 feet long and uh, weighing approximately eight tons, washed up on the beach in Florence, Oregon. Uh, The officials didn't know what to do. It was managed by the Oregon uh, Department of Transportation in terms of whale removal. Um, They stuffed it with half a case of dynamite or 20 cases of dynamite, uh, weighing about half a ton of dynamite. And uh, the resulting explosion was almost nuclear level and uh, just a, a, a... ridiculous insane absurd scenario uh captured for posterity on a uh, news report out of katu in portland uh that is since been called the first viral video uh, has been watched millions of times and uh just the whole thing became part of not only oregon lore but uh national lore and even global uh people know this story so when i was in eugene on may 6th and yes it's a month later but i get a lot of material so i kind of circle back to things um you know, I've written a lot of stories on alternate identities. Usually I'm able to get a few relevant perspectives, but this time, you know, I talked to the general manager about how it came about, Alan Benavides. I talked to the graphic designer who's no longer with the team on creating the logo. I talked to the community relations manager for the Emeralds who actually just does the merch in typical minor league baseball fashion about how well that is sold. But even more than that, Paul Lindman, the original reporter who was at the game, um, he was at that game, the guy who did the story in 1970. I was able to interview him. I was able to interview a pair of brothers whose father, Walter Umenhofer, he was the guy whose car was destroyed by a five-foot chunk of whale blubber. So at this game, the sons of that man were there talking about the story of how their dad came to be at the beach that day, why he was in the area in the first place, and, um, you know, their take on this brand-new Oldsmobile getting uh, destroyed by a chunk of whale blubber uh, in a ill-fated explosion. The funny thing is that Walter Umenhofer bought that car recently. It was new at the time, but he bought it from a dealership that was advertising uh, their cars as a whale of a deal 
with a sperm whale like logo drawing and then uh, that car goes on to get it uh, destroyed by a chunk of whale did you say uh, a five <laughs> foot chunk of whale blubber yeah i mean so it's that a is horrifying. now but and but that was i think the largest chunk that you know really went up in the air from the explosion um absolutely totaled this car so we laugh about the story now and one of the reasons is that like people could have been killed and yeah. no one, uh the fact that it was just people got you know rained upon with tinier bits of blubber for the most part a car was destroyed but no one was really hurt um apparently there had been this method of whale removal before but had been deemed to be insufficiently explosive so they you know overcorrected in this situation these days i'm told the preferred uh, whale removal method is uh, burial as opposed to explosion. Uh, the reason it was exploded was there'd be so many tiny bits of whale in the result of the explosion that then shorebirds, you know, at their leisure could then just eat the whale chunks. And it's like a, you know, back to the earth, a, a nature-based removal with the help of uh, 20 cases of dynamite. But yeah, it didn't work out that way. But the man overseeing this ill-fated um, demolition, you know, who doesn't come across well in the news story, he's kind of the butt of the joke, um, an engineer named George Thornton, his members of his family were at the game as well. And I talked to his grandson, Jason Lusk, and he was just like, yeah, man, if my grandfather was still alive, like we wouldn't be here today. He never wanted to talk about it. You know, he always kind of resented that he was the butt of the joke and, you know, he did it in consultation with others and he was a really kind and curious man. And, and I get it, you know, so, you know, I've, I've looked in researching the story. I found George Thornton's, you know, obituary. And what is it about, really? You know, the man who oversaw the whale demolition, you know, that would be very frustrating to have this attached to you. And I talked to Paul Lindman about that a little bit, who felt, you know, guilty that, um, that, you know, his news report, he had no idea the reach it would one day have, you know, always made George Thornton kind of an object of, um, if not ridiculed, and, you know, someone to kind of laugh at for being inept. So it was interesting that his family were there, but as his grandson told me, you know, like, look, this is part of like Oregon lore at this point. And we choose instead of from running away from it, we choose to embrace it at this point. And I'm here to also celebrate my grandfather as the man I knew and, you know, not as the butt of a joke in a two and a half minute video that people watch online. So um, I've never written about an alternate identity, one that I probably liked as much just going into it based on the story behind it, combined with the number of perspectives I was able to get at the ballpark and um you know we here at milb milb.com mlb.com um you know we we know we're writing for an audience of discerning content consumers and you know we try to respect your time and keep things brief but this is a situation where i just kind of had to uh, make an exception to the rule and this is a pretty long feature and because i just really felt there was a lot of perspective to incorporate and a real story to be told so i hope people listening to this really do check out that article Give it a few minutes, you know, you're not going to have to spend hours reading it, but sit down and read it. And I'd love to hear your feedback on it. And it's nice for me to stretch out a little bit and write a feature that's, you know, closer to 2000 words than the usual six, seven, eight hundred words. And uh, I'm glad I got a chance to do it. And I think now we can probably finally stop talking about uh, exploding whales on this podcast because we just keep coming back to it. And that's mostly on me. It's just been such a great thing to talk about. But I think we've exhausted the topic. Um but man, that's what I love about these kind of stories. There's just so many angles you can approach them from. And when it all comes together in one place, it's uh, it was a real treat for me as a writer. Well, we're not going to go entirely away from it as of yet, because not yet. Get a, we do get a chance to listen to the interview with the man himself, Paul Lindman, who did the uh, very first news report on the exploding whale uh, over 50 years ago. 
and Ben got a chance to catch up with him. Here with Paul Lindman, who did the original news report on the exploding whale of Florence, Oregon. Now it's more than 50 years later and you're at a minor league baseball game in which a team, the Eugene Emeralds, is playing as the exploding whales. What is going through your mind right now? Well, what's going through my mind is not a day has passed in 50 years and somebody hasn't talked to me about the whale. And there were a number of years I didn't want to talk about it. I was sick of it. But uh, after a while, somebody said, hey, most of us won't be remembered for anything. You'll be remembered for something. Get used to it. So now I live with it. But Eugene M's playing as the Exploding Whales a few times this season is the second best thing that's happened to me as a result of the whale. The first being, I've gone to Italy three times to speak to a graduate business school that 40 American universities feed into. They were using my book as uh, a text in their international problem solving curriculum, what's a better solution than blowing up a whale? So I've lectured in Italy on this three times. It was good for nice honorariums and all expense trips to Europe. But after that, the Eugene M's playing baseball with exploding whales on their shirts and my ability to get a jersey and a hat. I can't beat that. Yeah, and uh, so if we go back all the way to 1970, you're a young reporter, how do you first hear about this story and what was, and, and you know, when you got there, you didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, how did this get assigned? And I didn't really know about it, but the news director, and in those days, uh, our bosses were our friends. Um, he liked me. He, he called me and the photographer, a guy named Doug Brazil, like the country, uh, and said, hey, I want you guys to go to the beach uh, tomorrow. He said, I'm going to hire a small aircraft to get you down there. We thought, oh boy, we're, this is a big deal. We're going to be on a plane going to the story. And I said, what's happening, uh, Pat? His name was Pat Wilkins. And he said, oh, they're going to blow up a whale. And I said, no, come on, what's happening? He says, no, I got a tip from the State Highway Department. They've got to dispose of a whale in Florence on the beach. They're going to use dynamite. We're the only ones that know about it. You're gone. And like, like you asked, we had no idea what that was going to be like. And when the thing blew up, my partner Doug was behind a big sound camera on a tripod. I was behind a smaller 16 millimeter Bolex camera. Both our eyes are behind the viewfinder. We're a thousand yards away. The thing blows. And we thought, oh, this is cool until we heard the chunks hitting the ground around us and realized that a piece as big as your little digit could go through the top of your head like a bullet. And then we ran like hell. And, <laughs> Understandable. And when we ran, there was a second explosion out of sight in front of us. We didn't know what that was because it was behind a sand dune. It was the parking lot where the car got nailed by the big piece that flattened it, yeah. Walter Umenhofer's Oldsmobile. And that was the second explosion. <laughs> I mean, it was just a totally bizarre thing. But when we started getting requests for the video or the tape film at the time uh, from other organizations and governmental units and whatnot in the weeks to come, we thought, why do people keep bucking us about it? And uh, rest is history, as they say, the story has lived on for 53 years and uh, people are still talking to me about it. Now they're playing baseball. Yeah. Now this story would probably be remembered regardless, but the reason it's achieved such cultural prominence has a large part to do with the story you put together with the alliteration and the wordplay and just the humorous tone throughout. Um, did you know right away like how you were going to approach this after it happened? I really didn't because the news at that time was a more serious business. It was the days of uh, Huntley Brinkley and Walter Cronkite. Um, I'm a local reporter. Something serious has happened, but it's kind of humorous at the same time. I don't want to make make it a joke story or a humorous story, but at the same time, I wanted to handle it lightly. The photographer, Doug Brazil, and I, who wanted to be here but had an accident and isn't able to be here, um, 
We have argued for years, I think it's his video and the fact that nobody has ever seen what it's like when a whale explodes that made that story live on. He thinks it's the script. He thinks it's the words. And we've disagreed about that for 53 years. You're kind to bring it up in that regard, but you know, we don't blow up whales and that's why it's lived on. Um, everybody wants to see it and it keeps being shown in foreign countries. I'm constantly talking to people. Hey, it was in Tokyo. Guess what they're showing? Exploding well. Hey, it was in London. Guess what I saw? The exploding well. The BBC, as a matter of fact, loves it. They interviewed me a half dozen times about it over the years. <laughs> and so, for whatever reason, it's still alive today. Yeah. The so, whale will not die. And you've come around now to embracing the legacy. And then today, an interesting angle is you have members of uh, George Thornton's family out here. And what's it like to connect with them and I don't know about making peace with them, but but you know, kind of clearing the air with the, how he was portrayed in the video and how things stand now. Well, I just met his grandson a few minutes ago, and um, I know that George had a problem with our story, and I really didn't want to make fun of the man. He was a very serious engineer. He'd been left holding the bag. Uh, his colleagues and, and bosses were on the hunting trip first season of deer season, first uh, weekend of deer season. And I didn't want to make fun of the man. He did what he thought would work best, and he was being advised by the U.S. Navy. But he ended up not feeling real good about the story, and I was talking to his grandson about it. I wanted to talk to him seriously when I wrote a book about it years later. And um, it's kind of funny, I went to the State Highway Department, and I said, can you get in touch with Mr. Thornton and tell him I'd like to interview him? And I wanted to make everything right with him. He didn't want to do it. And the guy from the highway department called me back and he said, you're not going to believe what he said to your interview request. I said, what did he say? He said, no, it seems like whenever I deal with the media, it blows up on me. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor about it. I don't think, I think he was serious when he said <laughs> Oh, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> cool, so, uh, yeah, I guess that's about all I have, unless there's anything I missed, anything you want to well, add about the Well, the third you? best thing that's happened about the whale, the lectures in Italy, yeah. the Exploding Whales Eugene baseball team, and being interviewed by MLB. I love MLB. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Happy to oblige and uh, appreciate your time. My pleasure. Well, that was an interview Ben recorded on one of his first uh, trips to the ballpark in 2023. There are more just around the corner, and by around the corner, I mean literally next week as Ben will be hitting the road starting on Thursday. Uh, ben, you're going to be heading south. Take us to uh, where you're heading next. Yeah, my next road trip is coming up soon, Thursday, June 15th. I'm headed south. And, um, you know, like all the road trips I'm doing this year, or most of them, you know, I'm really trying to prioritize places I have not been for quite some time. And uh, this road trip fits the bill. Thursday, June 15th, going to Birmingham, Alabama to see the Barons at Regents Field. I was at that ballpark when it first opened in 2013 and have not been back since. Uh, of course, hope to stop by Rickwood Field when I'm there, you know, the oldest ballpark in America that opened in 1910 um, and is still, you know, in great shape and, um, you know, had long hosted the Rickwood Classic in which the Barons played there every year. And, uh, you know, I think exciting things are in the works for that ballpark as well. So Birmingham, a town with a lot of baseball history. Glad to be starting my next road trip there. Then staying in Alabama and headed uh, the next night, Friday, June 16th, uh, to Montgomery, Riverwalk Stadium, home of the Biscuits. And I uh, haven't been there for, I believe, eight years. Last time I was there, there was a pig living in the front office, just incidentally. And I don't think that's happening anymore. <laughs> um, but it's been eight years since I've been there. I really like that ballpark. The first time I went to it incorporates a, a train station into kind of the uh, third base half of the 
you know, facility. Um, so a lot of history there. And there are train tracks that run right beyond the stadium as well. So, you know, trains are still incorporated in the game. I think before it was a train station, it was like a uh, Civil War prison of some sort, that site. Um, you know, so there's just a, a lot of history where that ballpark is. And having not been there for eight years, uh, looking forward to going back, seeing what's new and uh, getting some fresh stories. And then I'm going uh, on uh, Friday, June 17th. No, Saturday, June 17th and Sunday, June 18th. Uh, two nights or two games uh, with the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Uh, their ballpark, which I believe is now just called Blue Wahoos Stadium, um, that opened in 2012. I was there in 2012 and have not been back since to the Florida Panhandle to see the uh, Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Uh, that Saturday is their uh, Copa night. They are playing as uh, Pac to Pac, which is a really interesting Copa de la Diversion identity because it is um, paying tribute to what is believed to be the oldest you know, ball and stick game in North America. So this is something that has roots, um, you know, indigenous roots in, in, in North America for, you know, over thousands of years. So they're, you know, exploring like a different sort of history with this Copa identity and looking forward to seeing that. And of course, just being back in Pensacola, I really liked that ballpark when I was there in 2012. Um, you know, hard to believe it's been 11 years uh, since I've been there. I remember finding out that MCA, the Beastie Boys, died when I was in a Pensacola hotel room last time. So hopefully nothing as traumatic happens this time around uh, in the pop culture sphere. Uh, R.I.P. Adam Yauch, MCA. Um, then Monday is an off day in all of you know minor league baseball, but I'm going to head to Biloxi and uh, then see the Biloxi Shuckers game on Tuesday, uh, June 20th. And... Uh, I visited the Shuckers in 2015, their inaugural season. If you remember that inaugural season, uh, the ballpark wasn't ready for the first couple months. So there was one of those, you know, only maybe not only in minor league baseball, but a kind of a typical minor league scenario where uh, the ballpark wasn't ready. The team played several months on the road, um, you know, with the home team at their opponent's ballpark. They played some games uh, back in their old uh, stomping grounds of Huntsville, of Huntsville, where they relocated from. So when I was there in 2015, the ballpark was still just kind of getting off the ground and there was some construction still not fully completed. So here, eight years later, I'm glad to go back and, uh, you know, see what it's like in a little bit more of a stable and settled in context. So there you have it. Birmingham, Montgomery, Pensacola and Biloxi next week, Thursday, June 15th through Monday, June 21st, if I have all my dates correct, and I believe I do. Of course, if you want to be a designated eater, I am now accepting applications uh, for that job. Consume the ballpark cuisine. My gluten-free diet prohibits. Send me an email, benjamin.hill at mlb.com. And if you just want to get in touch with me at all for any reason uh, or have recommendations about any of those ballparks, any of those uh, cities uh, regarding you know things I might want to write about or check out in the limited time I'm there, always up open for it. Always like to keep the conversation going. And uh, looking forward to being back on the road. Yeah, and in, in those places in Pensacola and Biloxi in particular, because the last time you visited them, like you said, that they were just such new places and they hadn't been settled in yet. What are you going to look at first? I mean, what are you going to try to check in on in terms of like what have they changed around here? Yeah, I mean, it was the first season for both of them. So my memories are a little blurry. I'll tell you one thing I'll be looking for in Biloxi. I, I have to imagine this was changed, but again, you know, the ballpark, they were rushing to get it done. And I'd never seen this before. Um, but the foul pole, like the literal pillar that the foul pole, you know, rises up and you know becomes a foul pole. But that pillar was planted in front of the outfield fence for some reason in Biloxi on, on the right field side. So they had just this additional pattering, uh, um, padding 
over this pole protrusion that was in front of the outfield fence itself. And I imagine that's been fixed uh, eight years later, but uh, I'm definitely going to be checking that out. Um, Pensacola, they seemed like right from the jump, they were just like, you know, really killing it. And they've done such a great job since then. Um, so I'm not sure if there's anything specifically new I'm looking for, except just to get reacquainted. And um, I know there's just a great baseball community around there and, you know, good ownership group with Quinn Studer and his team. So I'm just looking forward to um, seeing what I missed over the last 11 years. And, uh, you know, and, and now having a sense of the place, you know, looking when you're at a new ballpark, there aren't really traditions. So at this point you can meet people who have made this team a part of their lives for a decade plus. And, you know, I enjoy that. And those are the kind of stories I like as well. Uh, as much as it's cool to visit a new ballpark, you know, it can be tough to find those kind of stories because there's no history there yet. And so that's what I'll be looking for uh, writ large, you know, history, people with uh, strong tie-ins to the place and, um, you know, telling their stories. Benjamin Hill, you can find on Twitter at Ben's Biz and on Instagram at the Ben's Biz. And uh, enjoy the trip, man. Looking forward to hearing some more stories. Those are two of the states I've not been to, Alabama and Mississippi. So I'm a little jealous that you get to uh, get to make that jaunt because they seem like very cool baseball stops. Yeah, and beachy too. Both Biloxi and Pensacola, like right there on the water. Um, I might have a little time to go to the beach um, just because there's an off day on Monday in between Pensacola and Biloxi, you know. I'm definitely not a man of leisure on the road, but I, I think I might be able to spend some time by the water and uh, that'll be great. And, you know, in all this talk, I forgot that I was at a, I did a ballpark visit just last week. I was in Hudson Valley and saw the cider donuts, you know, between talking about the exploding whales from my last proper trip and this next trip coming up. I forgot about that. So stay tuned in my newsletter, the Ben's Biz Beat, uh, as well as MILB.com stories or MILB.com. Check for uh more uh, material from Hudson Valley and them playing as the cider donuts. And uh, it was great to be back there as well. This is the time of year, you know, we just can't keep track of everything going on. Sometimes uh, I think that's all true for all of us and everyone who works in baseball. So we're all doing our best trying to get by making our way to the murky yellow haze. Good stuff as always. Thanks, Ben. Thank you guys. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One of the most exciting prospects in baseball reached the big leagues finally this week as the Cincinnati Reds top prospect and MLB Pipeline's number four overall prospect, Ellie De La Cruz, has finally arrived on the major league scene. Uh, his very first ball put in play, I believe, was north of 112 miles an hour uh, in a big league game after he walked in his first uh, plate appearance. His first game for the Reds, which was last night. Again, we're recording this on Wednesday, so it was Tuesday night. One for three with the double, two walks. He also struck out once, uh, but a pretty impressive start in game number one for Ellie De La Cruz, which just follows uh, an absurd start to the season with AAA Louisville in the International League. 297, 398, 633, his slash line through 38 games uh, with the Louisville Bats. Sam, we know that this season – 
is probably not going to be the one that sees the Reds uh, get over the hump and back into playoff contention. Although, as of right now, they're only five games back of 500, uh, but they're adding a really big piece of their future in Ellie De La Cruz, who is up at the major league level now. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the big questions of minor league baseball in recent weeks, right, was when is Ellie De La Cruz coming up? Because, um, you know, the Reds have shown a willingness to call guys up when they seem ready. Uh, and Lord knows Ellie De La Cruz looked ready at, at AAA Louisville. Um, so you mentioned, Tyler, the fact that they are five games under 500 right now, but they're only five games back in the NL Central, which is pretty weak this season. They're only four games back in the wild card. So, like, there is something to play for here for the Reds. I mean, you, you look at, like, the Cardinals have never been more vulnerable than they are right now. The Brewers aren't running away with this division by any means. Um, in fact, the Brewers, Pirates, and Reds are all 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. Like, the Reds are kind of holding in there. And if you add a potential superstar talent like Ailey De La Cruz, I mean, watching some of the highlights last night, it was electric. And I use that word a lot with Ellie. I, I get that because of how dynamic he is as a player. But like there was some real buzz just by having one player around. It's kind of crazy how that can happen. And, you know, one player does not make a 26 man roster. I get that. Uh, but just having somebody who has that energy can be a really big boost to a team and is a signal to the team that, hey, we're, we're in now. Like the, we're getting the best guys to the major leagues. Um, so, again, just to kind of reiterate, Things we've said for a while now about Ellie De La Cruz, but they never hurt to say again. Um, just a true, I, I don't want to say true five tool potential because the big question with him has always been the bat, right? Like he's always struck out at least 30% of the time, uh, but he hits the ball hard. So when he puts it in play, it's more likely to be a hit. He doesn't have a lot of weak contact and he's got at least plus speed, if not plus plus speed. Uh, that was one of the other things that he did last night was showing that off and getting that double. He came flying out of the box. He eats up ground with really long legs. Uh, so if it, even if he has a, you know, a dribbler up the third baseline, he could still get a single out of that because he's going to be busting out of the box. He switch hits. He throws the ball really hard from shortstop. Um, he can play third base if they really need it. It seems like the plan right now would be for him to play short, Matt McClain to be second, and Jonathan India slide over to third base. We'll see how that's going to kind of figure things out. But I think that might be the best case scenario for all three of those guys. Matt McClain is a really good defensive second baseman. Elliot de la Cruz, just a superior athlete, put him at the premium spot. And Jonathan India, who wasn't a really great defensive second baseman, but who's bat, you do want in the lineup and is that veteran presence. Put him over to third base, which is, I think, where he played in college at University of Florida. So not the most difficult move for him. Um, but, yeah, to have Ellie De La Cruz coming out, flying out of the gate like he did last night, the fact that he walked twice, I think, was such a huge sign because that was something I wrote about and talked about on the show before is that, you know, dating back for uh, the last month with Louisville, his plate discipline had really improved. Uh, he was somebody who was laying off pitches down in the zone. And that was his biggest weakness was he would get a breaking pitch low, couldn't lay off it, would swing over the top of it, swing and miss. That's how you end up striking out 30% of the time. His K rate with Louisville was 26.9, which isn't great. It's not something like if you're looking at a prospect and being like, oh, yeah, you can do that everywhere. It's probably going to get worse in the majors. But it's a significant step in the right direction. And for a 21-year-old, that's what you're looking for is somebody who is improving over time. So the fact that he did that was special. 
or was notable, I should say. But his walk rate was 14%. I mean, that's how he got to that 398 OVP. That's almost double what he's done anywhere else. I mean, normally his walk rate's in the sevens. It was 14% uh, at AAA. And then to walk in two of his first three plate appearances. Also had that ball, like you said, Tyler, at 112 miles an hour, which instantly became the hardest hit ball by a Cincinnati Red this season. I love when that happens. I got to say, like, we talk about these guys for a living. This is what we do. And we're trying to, we do that to get fans like you guys listening at home prepared for this moment. So when we say Ellie De La Cruz hits the ball hard and we have evidence of that, we do that. So when he does this, it's not a surprise. But for him still to meet that threshold immediately in his major league debut and to be bad in cleanup, this is not like a situation with the Mets with Francisco Alvarez where they've been hitting him ninth over and over and over again. The Reds know what they have in L.A. De La Cruz, and they're plugging him right in. And for him to show out like he did was really fun. It's just one game. Like the book is going to be out on him pretty soon. Major league hitters are going – or pitchers, I should say – are going to try to rack up those strikeouts like double A guys did, high A guys, low A, um, because there there's still some swing and miss. So yeah, to sum it up, I mean, look, look the tools are going to play. Like it's loud. It's it, they're all there. They are instantly going to become, you know, what we call a stack starling. Like I'm sure Ellie De La Cruz isn't going to stop at 112 miles an hour. Uh, there are other exit velos coming that are going to be pushing 116, 117, 118. Judgian Stantonian numbers. Um, he's going to be posting sprint speeds that you know, are north of feet per second. Uh, he's going to have a throw that's going to be close to 100 miles an hour, if not exceeding it. I mean, a lot of this is um, the adjustments he's going to have to make at the major league level two pitching that's going to determine what level of superstar he can be. But the fact that it played this quickly was so exciting to see. So exciting to see him get that opportunity. And it's just nice to see excitement in Cincinnati again uh, after you know what seemed like it could be a down year like I was saying earlier they're right in the thick of it still getting this one player could be enough uh, to at least keep them in the race and maybe push them over uh, and I'd be fascinated to see now Tyler I don't know if you have thoughts on this if like this is too late for Ellie De La Cruz to be part of a National League Rookie of the Year race but it's a very good there. question yeah I mean Corbin Carroll's doing really well I'm not trying to take anything away from Corbin Carroll and like Alvarez, who I mentioned before, too, uh, you know, has been really strong for the Mets. But, you know, you think back to, like, Spencer Strider or Michael Harris II showing up kind of late in the season last year and pushing for rookie of the year. Or we had Gary Sanchez, who played, like, 60-plus games. It wasn't that much when he was pushing for rookie of the year. It's possible. And Ellie's kind of that guy who can make it make it happen. Especially, I mean, just with the way everything he does is so eye-catching, that's sort of the thing that makes you wonder if that's a possibility. If this is a dude who's going to be hitting baseballs 115 miles an hour for the next three, four months, then I think a lot of people are going to look at him as, you know, is and especially if the Reds can make a, a push toward 500 or toward a wild card spot or whatever it is, um, then I think people look at him as, oh, he's as much of a difference maker as anybody else. Now, on the, you know, the same side of that coin, you got Corbin Carroll leading a surprising Arizona team uh, that's in the mix for a division title or a playoff berth this year. And granted, it's June 7th, but um, that is a fun race. That National League uh, Rookie of the Year race is going to be interesting to watch as the season goes along. Um, and as for uh, the final kids into the pool in the minor league baseball race, 
2023. Complex leagues getting started uh, in Florida and Arizona. It's a little weird to not have the Appalachian League or the New York Penn League or the Pioneer League, the Northwest League. Uh, but for the Arizona Complex League and the Florida Complex League, some more prospects getting set uh, to kick off their pro careers or the continue along in the early stages of their development. Yeah, and also throw in the Dominican Summer League there, too. I mean, all of those leagues started this week. Their opening day was on Monday. Um, so I like the way you put that, Tyler. Is that the way I wrote it for a different story for MLB Pipeline was the game's all here. Like, now everybody's playing games. Everybody who's not injured uh, is playing games that matter. Uh, so that's all stuff you can follow on MILB.com. All of the box scores for those complex circuits come through MILB.com. So be sure to check out that every day. Um, but yeah, these are, it, it's rare. In fact, no top 100 prospect is opening in a, uh, oh, I guess that's not entirely true. Chase the water uh, is kind of rehabbing in the ACL to start the year. But for the most part, you're not going to find top 100 guys, but you're going to find guys who might be starting that trek, right? Like they are laying the groundwork to become even bigger names, especially in the DSL. You know, some of these names, you'll, not everybody's Ethan Solace. We talked about on the show last week. They get signed, they immediately move stateside. Even if somebody's signing for two, three, four million dollars, they might start in the Dominican just to kind of get their feet set and, and try to maybe jump to Arizona by the second half. Um, but this is really where guys are finding their pro careers. Uh, you look at somebody like Ellie De La Cruz, he used the Arizona Complex League in 2021 to become who we know now. I mean, he hit 400 and slugged 780 in 11 games as a 19-year-old in that league before the Reds were like, all right, this is not challenging enough for you. We need to kind of push you higher. But before that, he had only slugged 380 in the DSL. So he used the ACL to as a proving ground to be like, this is who I am. Uh, now everybody kind of take notice of me. James Wood did that. He was a second-round pick in 2021. Got really good money, but coming out of the IMG Academy, there were some questions about, like, who is he as a hitter? Now we know him as a consensus top 10 prospect in the game. And because he was able to show that pretty quickly in the Padres system, that some of those IMG Academy concerns were just either small sample or dealing with the pressure of trying to enter the draft after you sign, that kind of goes away. I don't know. There are a lot of reasons for it, but James Wood was very much looking like, you know, the five tool monster that we know him as now in the ACL before that. So uh, we have a story on MLB pipeline of all the best prospects from each organization that are beginning in the complex leagues. I kind of have my eye on Christian uh, Vaccaro of the Washington Nationals. The Nationals are filled right now with outfielders, uh, some really good ones between James Wood, who I just mentioned, and Robert Hassel III and Elijah Green, all of which have some level of questions, and Vaccaro's not immune to that. Uh, but he has some five-tool potential. The speed is plus-plus. The power is pretty good, although it hasn't developed quite yet. Um, he can play a really good center field, so he could add to their good problem to have of too many center fielders, although he's years away from that happening. But if he latches on here quick, um, all the tools are there for him to fuel his rise towards the capital. And I'm going to be really interested to see what another year of physical maturation and development has done for Vicaro. So he's my one I'll, I'll single out now. But again, check out MLB Pipeline. We have a story on every organization's top prospect heading into the complex leagues. and. Again, keep your eye on those box scores and, and see who's breaking out. I mean, this is this is the ultimate time to say you knew them when is before they got to the bright lights of single A and high A. 
of what they were doing at the complexes in Arizona, Florida, and the Dominican. All good stuff. And you can check out uh, the story of Sam noted on Pipeline. And uh, you can check your organization's top 30 rankings there as well. Figure out uh, who is in those short season leagues and uh, who could be in those short season leagues, especially after the draft comes along. And um, with that, we'll step aside for our final timeout and bring it on back uh, with Ben to talk about promos and games to watch this weekend. It's all ahead as we say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show. Just one more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hotly anticipating anxious week until we get Ghost of the Miners back. And I know I, along with you, could not be more thrilled. Uh, Josh Jackson is out on like a solo bikepacking trip. He just like wandered off into the woods in New Hampshire. That's not an accurate depiction of how he got there. But uh, he's just like out, you know, doing the, he's on the road. He is Alexander Supertramp right now pretty cool i'm happy for him yeah no it's a, it's a very josh trip it sounds like yeah like just picking a destination in new england and, and taking the bike there so taking a bike gonna go camping on his own he's the greatest man yeah. um but he will be back with us for ghost of the miners coming up next week and uh before we get out of here we're gonna tell you about some things to be on the lookout for around minor league baseball this week and we're gonna kick it all off with benjamin hill giving us the promo he is most excited for this week well, you know, I had a couple in mind, but you guys were just talking about our good friend, Josh Jackson, who is uh, the only person I've ever known personally who has a bindle stick. Like he's traveling right now, but he actually has one of those old him, uh, hobo sticks that, you know, he ties a kerchief to the back of it and walks around and like whistles the tune. It's like um, red so and white he... polka dots. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, who in the year 2023 <laughs> is like, oh, I'm traveling. And he literally packs up his bindle stick. But Josh will be back um soon enough and um with who knows what new treasures in his bindle stick and uh hopefully him and his bindle stick make it to the portland sea dogs his hometown team on june 9th we've talked a lot about the portland sea dogs and how they have emerged as you know minor league baseball's reigning alternate food themed identity champion i think the most recent one they announced was the uh, clam bakes and we talked about that a little bit they've also got the bean suppas the red snappers um, but this Thursday, June 9th, they are playing as the Whoopie Pies. We've talked about this before, but I'm going to highlight that as a promo of the week uh, simply because I hope Josh Jackson is able to attend that game. And uh, maybe this will spur him to provide us with a little uh, Whoopie Pie content, even if it's not an official article. Maybe we can just get him on the podcast to talk about uh, Whoopie Pies. I think we need a little but, uh what is Maine? Is it down east, far east? What's the down what's east the term for down east? Down east. Yeah, we don't just need tell some... the don't tell the wood ducks. Yeah, not the down east North Carolina wood ducks, but we need some of Josh's uh, homespun down east wisdom on the whoopie pies because, of course, and this is probably something we've also talked about on the show. Um, the Redding Phillies, the Redding Fighting Phils, also have a whoopie pie identity, um, which they say they're like the home of the whoopie pie. 
you know, there in, um, you know, Pennsylvania, Dutch country, but Portland and Portland Sea Dogs and Maine say, no, we are. So there's two teams in the AA Eastern League who have uh, whoopie pie related uh, bragging lights, rights and alternate identities. Thursday, June 9th, the Portland Sea Dogs are the whoopie pies. And if you like whoopie pies, which are basically what? Marshmallow in between soft, pillowy little cakes. Um, then you'll probably like that alternate identity. And um, I'll make sure to ask Josh about it once he gets back from his trip. Um, assuming he makes it back, not that anything bad will happen to him, but like he travels very, very slowly and it can be hard to traverse that terrain on foot. Especially with your bindle when your bindle is overflowing. Uh, I do feel like Josh is off on like a meditative trip to just come to try to come up with future fake identities for ghost of the minor segments. Like he's just out sitting in the woods free of distractions. And he's just like, Oh, the Okaboji walnut hunters. Like that'd be a good one for, you know, a future, uh, Sam games this weekend, more, more baseball coming up. What do you got? I think I just want to say bindle stick one more time so we can get the record <laughs> on a podcast. I, I don't know if there's like a traveling podcast out there that has said bindle stick more than we have in the last three minutes, but just like a, a podcast about, uh, yeah. People riding the rails in the 1930s. Yeah. It'd be a great alternate identity, Portland bindle sticks. Let's go. That would be pretty good. That would be pretty good. Um, anyways, now that we have secured the record, I'm calling it. We're now legends. Uh, my game, since we're, we're coming out, you guys, because of scheduling reasons on a Thursday, uh, which actually works out well this week, because if you are listening to this on Thursday, Thursday afternoon, the MLB pipeline game of the month, is occurring tonight on Thursday. Uh, the game is in Bradenton between the Bradenton Marauders and the Dunedin Blue Jays. It's great because it offers us kind of a rare look into the Florida State League. Not many games in the FSL are available on MILB TV, but Bradenton home games are. Uh, so our colleague Jonathan Mayo will be down in Bradenton providing all sorts of content around that game, uh, particularly interviews with Tamar Johnson, which will be up on Instagram Live. So be sure to check that out. After the game has already gone on, uh, Tamar Johnson, a lot of people thought he had a plus-plus hit tool coming into the year. Uh, that's why the Pirates made him such a prominent pick in last year's draft. There have been some early questions about how that hit tool is transitioning to pro ball. Tamar Johnson, somebody who missed the first couple of weeks of the season because of a hamstring injury. So it's taken him a while to kind of get up to speed. I still think he can be a really, really good hitter. Um but he's striking out more than maybe we would, would have expected in the FSL. So check out the game for yourselves. Try to see, you know, how Tamar Johnson's coming around. Try to identify, is he, has he turned a corner or why are, is he striking out? Uh, the Pipeline Game of the Month is a great opportunity for you to do that on your own. Uh, so that's my pick. Check it out on Thursday. That's the Pipeline Game of the Month. Of course, the way the minor league schedule works, Bradenton and Deneen will be playing. Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. So also check out any of those games on Mill TV. Tyler, what's the series you're looking at? Yeah, the uh, AA affiliate of the New York Yankees, the Somerset Patriots. We've talked about them a lot, the amount of talent that's on that team with Jason Dominguez and Austin Wells and a whole bunch of other uh, top talents, including two more top five prospects in that system, Everson Pereira and Trey Sweeney. Uh, they, this week, are going up against the AA Hartford Yard Goats, and there is not a lot to be excited about uh, at the moment if you're a Colorado Rockies fan, but the top prospect in that organization and baseball is number 30 overall, Zach Veen. 
He'll be uh, part of that series uh, trying to get his season on track. He's still young. He's just 21 years old, so obviously very uh, young for the level, but trying to get himself figured out uh, so far through the uh, month of May. It seemed as though he was getting things on track. He scuffled a bit uh, to start June, but he's not the only headliner on that team. Uh, Hunter Goodman has had a really good season with Hartford so far. 16 homers and 51 RBIs and 50 games played, and this is a throwback. If you're an MLB draft uh, connoisseur, the Rockies uh, back in 2018 selected a first baseman uh, out of New Hampshire, Grant Levine. And Grant Levine was the first ever first round or the highest ever first uh, draft selection as a New Hampshire position player. We've seen first rounders on the pitching side out of New Hampshire prep ranks, but never a, a position player. Grant Levine has really kind of struggled throughout his career, but he might be figuring it out. Um, he's almost 24 now, but uh, in 49 games with double A Hartford hitting 265 with an 849 OPS. Uh, Hunter Goodman is only hitting 237, but that OPS is at 886 thanks to a 323 on base percentage and 563 slugging percentage. So some stuff there to uh, to take a look at, and that's coming up on MILB.TV this weekend. And uh, that'll do it. Uh, Josh Jackson returns to the throne of Ghost of the Miners coming up next week, and we return to your podcast feed then as well. For Sam Dykstra and Benjamin Hill, my name is Tyler Mom. We'll catch you then. <laughs>